kind of fail to learn a lot of times. And even if you think that, oh, if you just give data to somebody, they'll kind of look at the data and they'll accept the reality of the situation. Like a lot of times it's just, you got to try, you got to become frustrated and you got to fail. And if you don't go through the pain of it, it's very, it's a very rare person who can just look at the facts of the situation and just absorb them. I, I definitely recommend if you want to learn to communicate really well with Japanese people, just try communicating with them and just be self-reflective and look at, you know, what you did that didn't work and just try it a lot. There's no replacement for real experience. So. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Also, a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So, thank you in advance. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation I had with Sam Thornton, a self described bridge to Japan for startups and enterprise software vendors. He works to fuel growth in Japan for software companies by working to help employers acquire the talent they need for success in an ever shrinking talent pool. We'll learn more about Sam and his work in Japan during this interview, though, so be sure to stick around to learn more. Before we do that, let's take a moment to go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we went over a common set phrase in Japan Gokuro sama desu. Gokuro sama desu. Gokuro sama desu. Essentially, this phrase means you worked hard or good work today, but it can be a little bit tricky to know when it's appropriate to use. Because of how formality and hierarchy works in the Japanese language, this phrase can really only be used as someone of a higher position towards someone in a relatively lower position in the context. So, if you're ever in doubt, it honestly might just be safer to stick to the more polite alternative, Otsukare sama deshita. Today, I'll introduce one important word that's brought up in the conversation. Jikoshokai. 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 This word simply means self introduction, but it's such a foundational and formalized part of Japanese culture that it's probably worth remembering the term. For example, if you're meeting your counterparts in a Japanese team for the first time, someone may say, Jikoshokai onegaishimasu, which would mean self introduction, please, or please introduce yourself. But without any further delay, let's get into today's interview. I'm Sam Thornton. I'm an American expat here in Japan, and I work in a kind of cross border recruitment agency, I guess you might say. We help US companies who are trying to. Make a footprint in Japan to find local people. So, I've personally been here、uh, about five years. I live in Tokyo near Ueno. And、uh, yeah, I don't know if that was a good self introduction. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Could you just tell me a little bit more about how you ended up in Japan in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I have a philosophy degree. 
So that wasn't the most, let's just say it didn't open a lot of doors for me coming out of college. And I didn't want to go back into academia, asking around, what can I do with this? Uh, meanwhile, I was working um, just, you know, whatever day job I could get, basically, um, just trying to figure out what I was doing. And, you know, people said lawyer or professor or teacher, right? Teacher came up a lot. And I was fortunate that my high school had a Japanese language program. So I had experience. I'd been here for a week, basically, when I was in high school. I didn't really speak Japanese. You know, maybe it's different in other countries, but in the American school system, you don't really learn the language you study in high school, right? Um, otherwise, we'd all be speaking Spanish and French all day. But I could do my, you know, my Jiko Shokai, my little self-introduction. And I thought, yeah, you know what? Teaching in Japan is an option. I can get the job with my current, you know, credentials. And, you know, maybe I'll love teaching or maybe I'll love Japan or, you know, it'll get me back on track somehow. So came over here and didn't love teaching long term. Um, I did it for about a year and a half, but kind of found my way into the into the international business world um, as a next step. Yeah, that sounds yeah. awesome. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you specifically do now? You said that you work at a company that focuses on cross-border recruitment, but I guess what is your position? <laughs> yeah, maybe cross-border recruitment isn't the most intelligent way to put it. I think um, <laughs> what we, what, so what we do specifically is, we're, we're a small agency and we partnered specifically with a, a niche of IT software companies, uh, mostly like California-based kind of software companies that are usually pretty established in terms of like their, their global footprint. And Japan is kind of, it's a key market in Asia, obviously. And it's a, also a particularly difficult place to recruit in general. You know, I think Japanese companies also have a hard time with it, but coming here without a known brand in the market and, you know, probably not having anyone on your team who speaks Japanese already, who can kind of be a report line for these people, et cetera, uh, it, it poses a lot of challenges. So we help them to hire the kind of sales and marketing people who will help them to grow in Japan. Pretty much everybody knows by now that there's a pretty big shortage in Japan when it comes to workers, and it's only going to get worse in the coming decades. But anecdotally, it still seems like foreigners have a really, really hard time finding relevant jobs for their skill sets in Japan. Can you tell us any reason for that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, obviously I work in the kind of talent sphere and since I've become more visible on LinkedIn and have started posting more frequently on there, I've gotten increasingly, and maybe this is related to the the pandemic, and there's kind of a trend of people wanting to move to Japan more, maybe just because things are going a little smoother here, but I'm getting a lot of people reaching out to me like, hey, I want to move to Japan. How can I do it? And personally, mostly what I recruit is Japanese people who can sell to Japanese companies on behalf of an American company. So unfortunately, I have not been able to offer these people jobs here in Japan nearly as, as often as I'd like to. But, you know, I think it those things are related. And I think it, it has to do with there is a labor shortage in Japan. But if you think about Japan demographically and as a market, like the first point that I'll make is that Japan is a huge market. Like by GDP, it's the third largest market in the world. There's so much business to be done here domestically that most Japanese companies 
there's no reason for them to look outside of Japan for business. And it's very difficult for them to expand beyond the Japanese border a lot of times. So most positions in Japan are focused on working with other Japanese clients. So that's one thing is that, you know, Japanese companies rarely feel comfortable putting a foreign person in a position where they're going to be, for example, selling things to a big Japanese company. They just rather put a Japanese person in that position. So that's one thing is the kind of customer facing roles, you know, consulting, sales, these kind of roles. It's hard, very hard, I think, in general for a foreign person to get the required Japanese skills to kind of do that. And the other thing is that the labor shortage, a lot of it is about the more repetitive tasks, the kind of work that a, a you know, college-educated Japanese person from a middle-income family doesn't want to do. You know, there's, there's not a, there is a shortage of knowledge workers in certain areas, like, like um, you know, engineering, like software engineering is like a big one. Like there's not strong training programs, there's not strong university programs. And there's not strong talent pipelines for that. So there are uh, companies that, that are demanding, like, for example, Rakuten is a great example of a company that built their entire engineering team to be English first, because they just knew that recruiting people from overseas was going to be the path to growth. But in general, there's not a real shortage of knowledge workers who just do like business, cons- typical kind of domestic business consulting roles or you know, these, these kind of, um, you know, there's there's enough kind of financial planners, you know, they they really need specialized skill sets. And they also need people to do like elder care work and these kind of things that are maybe less attractive. Um, and, and a lot of them maybe aren't things that you can get a visa for. So I think those things all kind of combine to make it difficult. Other than engineering, are there any other parts of the Japanese labor market that are a little bit understaffed right now. I know that, like you mentioned, caregiving is a big one. Construction is another big one. But mm-hmm. is there anything else that you've noticed? You know, I'm always trying to think about this because I, I don't like to be the the negative person who's just like, oh, doing things in Japan is so hard. Like you just, you just, ha- you don't understand it's so hard. You know, you'll never do it. Um, that's, I think there's a lot of that. And I, I, I always try to be the person who can say like, well, here's one thing you might try, another thing you can try. So I think, you know, obviously, I think you probably talked about it on here before, but, you know, English teaching is a huge way to, to work here. That's a big industry. Again, to playing into the talent shortage, there's what I do. You know, you know, recruitment is there's always need for companies to attract people to work for them. So that's a, that's a common thing. And the, the path that I took from English teaching to recruitment, absolutely doable for lots of people, you know, low barrier to entry, kind of high bar for success type of industry. I've met some people who do business development from Japan into other markets. So for example, like when a Japanese company wants to do business with China or with Southeast Asia, that business is done in English most of the time. So they would, some, some Japanese companies are very comfortable just saying, hey, let's just get someone who just knows native English in this position rather than having one of us figure it out. So that's is a sector. Yeah, engineering is a big one. I think probably one that's coming up, it's not so big right now, is design, like UX and UI design. It's not seen as especially prestigious here for whatever reason. I think that's changing little by little. I think, yeah, there's some quirks. Japanese design has some quirks. If you've ever been to Rakuten, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we'll just leave it there. People can figure that out. But yeah, even translation, it doesn't seem like mm. there's a whole lot of room for foreigners to enter the market. Is that a correct impression or am I overgeneralizing? No, so I think, and this is something that I think is just a theme in general, is you kind of have to think about who your customers are for what kind of direction. Like when it comes to international business, it's like it always is flowing from one country to another. This kind of, so if you think about like who is the buyer and who, who is the sender and who is the receiver, like when it comes to, to translation work, I think it's more common and maybe somebody in the industry might disagree and maybe I'm wrong, but I think if you want to sell your Japanese product in America, then you will call a translator in America and say, hey, make this local for you. Because the same way that if you want to sell it in England, you'd call someone in England and say, hey, make this local for England. But as long as you're just selling it in Japan, it doesn't really matter if you put some English on your signs or whatever. It doesn't really matter if it's perfect. Because like you don't really care about the customers that would care about that. Like Your customers are the people who are reading the Japanese part anyway. So I think that that's a big part of the reason for that. And you'll probably see a lot more English to Japanese translators living in Japan than you will Japanese to English. But that's kind of a, you know, that field would be dominated by Japanese natives, uh, typically. For people who are new to Japan, and so obviously they're starting from scratch, they don't have their social networks from back home because they're entering a whole new country. How would you recommend that they go about finding the quote-unquote right people to connect with to start making progress in their job search or in their careers? So I guess one thing that kind of connects to what I was just talking about is if you think about recruitment firms, you know, not that necessarily working with recruitment firms is always the best way. It really depends on where you are in your career. But if you think about kind of recruitment pipelines, it's kind of similar. Like my firm is very focused on helping the companies to hire here as opposed to bringing talent to here because the companies already exist overseas, right? Foreign companies aren't looking to also, they're already bringing their company here. They're not trying to also bring people here. But if you think about a company that's already here that has a, a need to be filled, they might be bringing people here to fill that. And so you might find like, if you want to network, I think a lot of people reach out to me thinking that I'm going to be able to help them find a job because I'm a recruiter. And maybe some recruiters in my position kind of know the right people to introduce you to. But I think if you look at the more domestic looking Japanese firms, you might actually find that they're more involved in the game of helping foreigners come here. The companies who are recruiting for these kind of massive Japanese conglomerates who just like need talent are going to look more Japanese, the companies themselves. So that's, that's one thing I think is getting set up in Japan. It's complex and it's very personal and it depends on kind of what you want to do here. But I think without being too vague about it, there's kind of two points. And one of them I think is that having a, a Japanese person who's on your side and can you can leverage their ability to, to help you with, hey, I don't understand this paperwork or like, hey, I really need to read this critical page of this website to get this application done. And I just don't understand what's going on with this error message or whatever. Like having somebody who can help you with that is critical. And even more so is having somebody who you can ask for, sometimes just having a Japanese name on a piece of paperwork or a Japanese face to get you through a certain meeting or something can be really helpful because it just, I think a lot of people kind of take that the wrong way and feel like, oh, it's kind of like a discrimination thing. And sure, there's probably some cases of that, but I think it's, imagine if you were dealing with somebody 
who is from a foreign country who is trying to like rent an apartment from you or who is, you know, do something like that. And you didn't understand what they were saying. And it was just them. You know, it would be hard. It would be hard to feel comfortable saying like, okay, well, yep, just living here. I hope this goes well. So, you know, it really helps if you can have a Japanese person who is in your corner. Now, that said, the best way to find that Japanese person might not be to just try to become Japanese yourself and just try to find this very local person. Like a lot of times, I think the routes into Japan and networking here that are effective are through things that are intentionally international. There are like international friendship associations and international meetups. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is digital now. There's clubhouse rooms and there's LinkedIn networking groups and stuff that you can join. So I think that, you know, also networking with expats here is big. And I, I think it's probably easier to start there a lot of times. And those people might introduce you to the right kind of like Japanese in that you need in the right industry. It's funny because if you look at the numbers, it's like 2% of people that live here are non-Japanese in the country. Only 2%, very Japanese. And of those 2%, three quarters of them are you know, Chinese, Korean, or maybe like South and Southeast Asian. There is a very small number of people who are proportionally who are from like the US and Europe who are living here. But there's still actually, if you think there's 125 million people, that's still actually a lot. And there's a very strong community. And if you can get people to, to kind of be on your side and to kind of make those introductions for you, I think so that's kind of the, I avoided that, you know, a lot of people like try to avoid the expat community a little bit and I, there's some benefits to that but i really wanted my japanese to get great i was like i'm gonna get great japanese i'm only gonna be friends with japanese people who don't speak english and it turns out that like the, the best way to make friends is turn is to be, make friends with people who are interested in speaking english and international people so that was probably not the right approach to that although my my japanese did improve uh took me a while to make friends yeah definitely pros and cons to that approach but yeah, going back to what you were saying before about the discrimination with those sorts of situations, another point to keep in mind for people is that not only are they dealing with somebody who doesn't speak their language, but like you said, such a tiny percentage of people in Japan aren't Japanese. So it's like you've never seen a foreigner before or you've never interacted mm. with a foreigner before. Whereas in the, I feel like in the United States, especially if you're from a big city, you kind of take it for granted that, oh, of course people would be used to seeing people from other countries and know what to expect from mm -hmm. them. Like if you don't have that point of reference, it's even more difficult. So yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> keeping that in mind, yeah, I think is important as well. Yeah, I think, you know, like in Tokyo, everyone's kind of seen or interacted with the foreigner to some extent, but like, for example, where I live right now, this room that I'm living in, like this is a very old building in a historic neighborhood. And I am very sure that these people I rent from have never rented a room to a foreign person. You know, they've, I'm sure they've interacted with them, but yeah, whether they've done a business transaction and taken some kind of risk involving a foreign person is, yeah, the odds are not high, 2%, right? So. If you don't mind, I would love to hear a little bit more about your transition from teaching English to moving into recruitment. What did that look like for you? Yeah, it was hectic. So I've got kind of a funny story. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 24 at the time. And I never, I don't know, I guess I just missed the boat in college with like how professional careers work. Uh, <laughs> I was too busy like thinking about 
like continental philosophy and just like, whoa, it's the meaning of being. Um, I was not focused on, um, yeah, getting a real job. So I, I, I didn't understand how recruitment processes worked. I didn't understand how long it takes to get a job. And it turns out that in Japan, it's super different. I should say that traditionally in Japan, it has been super different. Um, so I basically, my English teaching company that I used to work for had a partnership with a kind of like local Japanese recruitment firm where the kind of the idea was that people who were kind of done with English teaching could maybe go through this recruitment firm to find their next job here in Japan. So I thought, yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking about moving on. I'll go talk to them and see what's going on. Um, I went and talked to these recruiters who were, it was a very like kind of domestic Japanese recruitment firm. And again, it's one of the places like I was talking about that they were going to introduce me to kind of like a big, like a tier one automotive supplier here in Japan, where I'd kind of be selling like automotive parts to probably, you know, Toyota, Mazda and companies like that. Um, did not did not end up taking that job, obviously, but they told me, oh, well, you're going to, because you're a young person, you will be applying as what's called a daini shinsotsugyo. means like shinsotsu or like shinsotsugyo means like a new grad, new college graduate. And daini shinsotsu is like this tradition of basically you get a do-over. So traditionally in Japan, you go to college, you graduate, you get a job, and then you work that job for it until you retire. Like, and that's it. The lifetime employment system, just as of like a year or two ago, they decided to officially at a government level, at least issue a statement that says like, hey, let's not do that anymore. Um, so it's changing, um, but you still see it a lot. People who join a big name like Hitachi or something, and they just work there for their whole careers. So they created this system where, yeah, they call it Daini, which is like second go, which means like, okay, so if you didn't get the good company the first time, you have like a two or three year window where you can change your job and it doesn't count as like a, a mark against you. But if you like change your job in mid-career, it was kind of considered like a disloyal thing to do. So yeah, they were telling me like, oh, you're going to do that. And that means that you need to go through this whole new grad hiring process, which the way that the big companies hire here is they do it in bulk. So they do these big seminars. So like all of the prospective employee, like new graduates, senior year in college, they all apply for a bunch of jobs at, I guess, like in the summer, like maybe June or July, like the year before they graduate. And they do what's called a shukatsu, which means it's like, yeah, it's the activity of going around and, and interviewing at a bunch of companies and everyone wears the same suit. And there's this very kind of formal way that it's done. Um, and so they told me, they kind of walked me through that and they were like, okay, so you're going to apply now. It's like July you know, you need to hurry, you're a little behind and it's going to be like three months. They're going to review your application and then you're going to go and you're going to like meet in these big groups. And then, you know, if you get to the next step, then you'll meet again. And then by like, you know, March of next year, you'll have a decision. And I was like, oh man, it's going to take like nine months to get a new job. Like maybe. So I better get on it now. I wasn't planning to leave my English teaching job until at the end of my second year. So I talked to this recruiter who told me it was going to take almost a full year to change my job. But I wanted to compare my options. I wasn't sure I was ready to go sell automotive parts. And I had a friend who lived in Tokyo. At the time, I lived in Ibaraki Prefecture in the, in the countryside. The Japanese people will kind of laugh when I tell them I lived in the countryside in Ibaraki. Um, not, much, not much out there, a lot of rice fields, uh, natto farmers. So I, I had a friend who said, you know, you should try recruitment. Um, and so I looked on the traditional place for finding jobs in Japan for gaijins who live here, Gaijin Pot. 
Um, and I, I applied to some recruitment positions and ended up getting an interview passed through to the second. And then at the end of the second interview, they were kind of like, okay, well, we want you to join. How soon can you start? And I was like, what do you mean how soon can I start? <laughs> I was like, I thought you were going to hire me to start like nine months from now. <laughs> and they were like, no, like we're thinking like two weeks from now. <laughs> I was like, oh man, uh, I had plans to go back to America. Um, so I had to like, I had to push and be like, I, I can join in like two months, you know? Uh, so I finally got that delayed, but yeah, so it was a bit of a whirlwind. Thought I was just weighing my options and it, I, <laughs> I, I uh, ended up getting recruited into recruitment. So that's kind of the story. Yeah, that is a great story. So you said that teaching just kind of wasn't really for you. Was there any other reason you wanted to move on from teaching English? I know that a lot of people can kind of get comfortable with it once they get used to their style of teaching, their school and things like that. So what was kind of the push for you? Again, I like to be positive. Um, I don't want to say anything that's too 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 dark. I, I think that I, I didn't really feel that the students were learning a lot, um, which was tough for me. And I was working in junior high also, which um, as a junior high school ALT, you don't have a, it depends on the school, it depends a lot on the school, but I didn't have a lot of control over what was going on in the classroom. I didn't set the lesson plans and it was just kind of like, I'm not really influencing whether the quality of the education is improving and I'm not feeling like it's super, like I'm utilizing my skills to help the kids a lot. I did really enjoy the kids. That was the positive part, but... I also wasn't really living in a place that I was super excited about living in. I'm the kind of person who like, I really want to see results happen, like proportional to the amount of effort that I put in. And it wasn't a job where I could really get that. Um, I was just feeling like I can work really, really hard at this, or I can just kind of get through the days and I'll kind of get the same result. And that was frustrating for me. So that was probably the biggest reason. And I also didn't come here. I came here massively in debt, you know, with just a ton of student loans, a bunch of credit card debt that I had to pay off. Um, I had like just enough money basically to buy my plane ticket and pay for my apartment when I first moved here. I was like, okay, this is it. I'm in. I have a real professional job. Now I just have to do it and I can pay this stuff down eventually. And that's, you know, it can be, that can be a good path, I guess, for, you know, it works for me. But I didn't have spare cash to like just do fun stuff. Like, so I was living in Japan, but I was like, all of my savings was going towards just like paying down my debts. And I wasn't able to just like, okay, I'm going to like take a weekend trip to Kyoto or something. So I kind of felt this pressure to like, I need to get in a job where I make more money. Otherwise I will not be able to enjoy this. So that was probably a big thing. I had a little bit of a similar experience teaching English in South Korea for a year where I felt like I was pretty good at my job, but it just, like you said, it doesn't make a difference if you do a good job or if you do a bad job. Mm -hmm. The result is the same. So that was extremely <laughs> discouraging. So I can definitely empathize with that. Do you feel like you get a lot more out of the work that you do now? What's rewarding about your position now? Yeah. So now I'm in a super unique position where what I'm doing is like business development for our firm and like helping find new clients and doing kind of strategic planning for us. But before I kind of moved into this new role, you know, doing the recruitment job itself, it's really hard. You know, it's not an easy job. If it was easy, then people wouldn't pay for it. You know, there'd be no reason to have a recruitment firm, but there is very much like a, you get out what you put into it. And so you kind of like, you get this kind of opportunity to where it's like, okay, you have like the machine and 
you have to like turn all these knobs and this big crank and you just have to do that like over and over again. But if you do it really well, then you get like a massive output from it and your clients are happy. They're like, wow, you know, we couldn't hire anyone and you found this person who we love and we're so happy. And there's a person who's like, I want to quit my job. I don't like my boss. Like, uh, and you find them this like great job at this exciting new company and everybody's happy. And like when you, when all the paperwork is signed, it's like, you just like made two people's lives really great, you know? So that is, that's super rewarding. And it has this very like, when it's done, it's done kind of aspect to it. Cause it has that sales kind of thing to it. Like where when you, when the deal is signed, the deal is signed and it's, that's done. Cool. Like, you know, for sure that you did your job. Whereas with teaching, it's very soft, right? When did they learn? There's always like, you never really know. I think there is rewarding, right? Like you hear your kids speaking English better than they did six months ago. And it's like, oh, wow, you actually learned, but it doesn't have that like, punchy like this is the moment where i did it i i taught you know so i think that that's what i liked about it but recruitment is a job that is very taxing and for every one of those rewarding situations that you get you know you've had to tell you've had a you've had like a hundred people tell you like i'm not interested and don't call me again <laughs> and then you've also had to tell a bunch of people like sorry you're not getting the job you know so you got to be the bad guy sometimes um, but that's the gig i guess yeah, as long as overall it's a worthwhile experience, I guess that's what matters. Exactly. So I know that this isn't maybe exactly your sphere, but among companies that are more open to hiring foreigners, do you have any insight into what qualities and skills they're usually looking for? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and again, it depends on what kind of position, what kind of company, but I, I think Japanese language skills are very highly valued I think even if you're working overseas for a Japanese company, if you can speak Japanese, I think it just, it's so appreciated. Japanese people who can speak English, some of them love doing it. So, you know, then yeah, you're just going to speak English to them. And like, it would be a little bit insulting to not, but I think there's a lot of people who are managing in this kind of situations who are like, you know, I, I, I speak enough English to where I can kind of get through this interaction and like, get what I need across but like man if I could just speak Japanese right now I would be way happier so I think if you can learn Japanese that just it will make people more comfortable working with you I think it's easier than it's ever been to kind of get that skill there's a lot of good apps and things out there now and I've spoken to some people some expats who've lived in Japan for like 20-30 years and they've said like yeah they've never seen so many foreigners speaking Japanese as do now so I think you know it's increasingly doable it's still hard but that's one that I would, I would point to. And the other, I would say, you know, maybe this is because I work in the like tech industry, like my clients are tech companies. And so maybe I'm just like reading too much tech news, but I think you don't have to be like a master software developer who worked for Google R and D. But I think if you have software related skills, if you're looking to come to Japan, like, you know, in a, in a week, obviously that's not going to help you. But like, if you, have a little time and you're thinking eventually I'd like to kind of move in Japan. That's a huge, it's going to be a growing demand. It's just a massive job skill and that, that, that will be in demand is people who know about software, people who can manage agile software projects, people who, yeah, even if you're not doing the development firsthand, if you really know about it, I think companies will need that. So the, those are a couple of things that I would really look at seriously. 
Do you see much from people coming out of boot camps in Japan? Is that a growing trend as well for foreigners? Yeah, I know there's a there's a few boot camps in town that I don't I can't remember the names of most of them offhand. There's one called Code Chrysalis. I know that's increasingly uh, growing, and I've got a couple of friends who have left actually recruitment to go to uh, Code boot camps and move into software development um, as like web developers. So. That's definitely a growing trend here. And, you know, those people are getting jobs with very little software development experience, um, you know, which I, th- I think shows you how high the demand is. You know, another way in that I'll just kind of plug because it's in my industry is if you are on an entrepreneurial bent and you're like, I want to start this company and I think that, you know, Japanese people would want this product or whatever, there is a startup visa that you can get where basically you send your like business plan and and how you plan to do it. And I think you have to prove you have a little bit of capital to the government and they give you a six month visa. And assuming that you get your business incorporated in that time, then you can get a visa to be the manager of your startup. And so you can incorporate a company and then you can give yourself a visa basically. Um, So that's, that's an option for the, you know, for the, the extremely motivated. I actually had an episode with somebody working at Kobe for Kobe's uh, version of mm. the startup visa. So yeah, there's a bunch of cities that are super passionate about helping foreigners establish their startups in Japan. A lot of the cities kind of have their own niche. So if you haven't already mm-hmm. checked it out and you're listening right now, you should definitely start looking into that. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be surprised some of the places, you know, I expected like, you know, Tokyo, obviously, but Osaka is really supporting a lot. Fukuoka builds himself as a startup city. But recently, I've been hearing a lot of stuff about Kyoto as a place for startups, which just surprised me because when I think of Kyoto, I think of like old wooden buildings. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, the te- ancient temple, I'm not <laughs> like startup. Oh, um, yeah, it's a really cool thing. If you're looking for something to spend a few hours researching, definitely start looking into the startup visa. It's an interesting use of time. Moving to Japan and trying to establish yourself as an expert sounds difficult even without the cultural differences, but Mm. given that Japan does have a different view of what it means to promote yourself versus being humble, I was just wondering how that tends to play out when job searching in Japan? Because obviously you don't want to be bragging. You don't want to kind of offend people by coming in and saying that you're the best thing ever, because Mm -hmm. that doesn't really fit in very well with a lot of corporate cultures in Japan. But can you tell us a little bit more about how that might look in Japan? Man, I wish I had my notes from this. I I remember the first time I I learned this phrase, um, Jiko PR, uh, when I when I was talking to that recruitment company I mentioned earlier, the Japanese one that tried to hook me up with the um, domestic job. Yeah, it wasn't the same kind of self-promotion. Like GCO PR, it means like self-PR. I think it was a little bit different. And I, I think, yeah, the humility piece is big. You know, yeah, I think you you don't want to go around saying like you're the best thing in the world. But I, I think um, in general, you know, fun, funny thing about working in kind of like cross-cultural consulting in Japan is that there's like two notions that you have to battle against. And one is the idea of some people that like, oh, I can just do what I always do and it'll just work fine in Japan. But the other thing is the notion that like things in Japan are like so different and you have to do things the totally Japanese way. Because there there's a funny thing that happens where Japanese people expect foreign people to do things in different ways than they expect Japanese people to. And 
there is almost a disadvantage. You almost put yourself at a disadvantage by not playing into that a little bit. So finding the balance of that is tough. Like, and I, I deal with that with my clients where it's like, look, you have to kind of come here and you have to play ball with the Japanese market, but you also can kind of go directly to Japanese people in a way you can approach a Japanese business in a way that a Japanese business maybe can. So on the business side, there's that. I think it, what it comes down to, and this is going to, it's going to sound like a cop-out answer at first, but I'll, I'll explain is empathy. And I don't mean empathy as this kind of squishy, like, oh, feel what they're feeling and just kind of do the right thing for that feeling. I mean, it has kind of like a process of listening, basically, before you do things and trying to really understand the reasons for things and the kind of why behind what the other person wants and think about like, what do they want from you? Like, what can you provide to them that is valuable to them? And before you kind of come out of the gate with what you think is going to be valuable to them, just based on your kind of like intuition, to actually investigate and ask and listen. And I think asking before telling is a good way to kind of show humility. You know, if you say like, well, you know, my idea is that maybe this kind of thing might be useful for you, but I'm wondering, you know, is that something that you're looking for in a candidate? Is that something that you need in your organization or what kind of is your priorities? And let them tell you what their priorities are. Let, let Japanese people tell you what they want you to tell them, basically, um, is kind of my, my advice in general. Well, I think it's a great way of approaching it. And also going back to what you were saying before about how foreigners sometimes get kind of exceptions. It's mm. a little bit of a being aware of what a gaijin card is and when to use it mm. and what the rules are. Of course, it changes based on the situation, but also the problem with playing the game of trying to behave like a Japanese person is you can't out Japanese a Japanese person. So right. if you try to play that game, you're just going to lose. So you have yeah. to figure out um, the rules for your situation and not just completely try to copy what Japanese people are doing because the game wasn't made mm -hmm. for you. Exactly. They didn't, if they wanted to hire a Japanese person, trust me, they would, you know, but they want a foreign person and that means they want a certain thing. And in different industries that can be good or bad. There's pros and cons associated with that. Like when it comes to teaching English, for example, there's the image that Foreigners are more energetic, we're more outgoing, we're less afraid of being embarrassed, you know, and so the English teachers are expected to be a little bit more like, you know, hey, kid, you know, how are you doing today? You know, they got to have the bring the energy. And because the t Japanese teachers have a hard time doing that, they have a hard time kind of coming out of their shell and just being this like, you know, game show character. And so that's, you know, if that's not you, if you don't like doing that, like, I'm not a big person for that. So it was kind of tough for me to like do that because I didn't realize that was going to be the expectation. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if that suits you, then that's great. And different places, it's going to be more or less of that, right? But I think, you know, if you can be that, then they're going to love you. So. So shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about your views on the JLPT and other Japanese language certifications. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with those? Yeah, so just going to start this answer by bragging. I have the N1, um, so I, I passed the highest level. But, you know, I actually, I'm going to just walk that back because I'm not sure 
how well that really reflects in terms of like my actual Japanese, like functional Japanese level. And I guess I'll explain what I mean by that. So when I was living in Ibaraki, I was functional, I was pretty much alone. You know, I had a very small community of people who also worked for my same um, English teaching company. And that was pretty much it. So I just felt like this desperation in terms of like, I just need to like get my Japanese skill up. And also like, I have these letters coming in the mail and like, I can't understand what anything is. I don't know what's important, what's not important. There's someone at my company that I can ask, but like, after you ask for a couple things, then you start to feel like, man, I'm asking about everything. And like, there's a hundred other people in your cohort and they're all doing the same thing. And the staff is kind of getting like, hey, can you just use Google Translate or whatever? And you're like, oh man, I got to figure out how to do this. Um, a lot of people never figure it out. So, you know, I'll, I'll put that out there that it is possible to survive here with very little Japanese. I think you end up irritating a lot of Japanese people and like the service providers end up like having to come after you for not paying bills that you didn't know about and stuff. Um, so, you know, pros and cons to that. But I, I do know people, especially in Tokyo, who have lived here for ages and, and never pick up Japanese. So if you are in an ecosystem where you can get a job without it and like, oh, that reminds me, I didn't say earlier, another ecosystem where people do get jobs here as foreigners is finance and particularly like investment banking. And I don't, it's not my world. I don't know how that works, but there's a bunch of people who work for like Goldman here who are not Japanese. I don't know. So anyway, I'll just drop that there. But I think to go back to the JLPT topic. So I studied really hard when I lived in Ibaraki and I think I was super motivated because I felt like if I don't get this done, then I can't live basically. So I... I just jumped in at the deep end. I just bypassed the N5 and the N4 entirely. And I just signed up for the N3. Like I was like, okay, tested in three months. I'm going to buy the textbooks. I'm going to force myself every day for like two hours. I woke up at like 5 a.m. and just studied every day. And then fortunately, because I was in the Japanese classroom, like during the daytime, I could kind of like reverse engineer the Japanese when the Japanese teachers were lecturing to the students about the English grammar points. I could kind of like, they're drawing an equal sign to the the Japanese grammar point that they're teaching in English. And I could kind of like, ah, so I'll just take a quick note. And when I go home, I'll look that up, you know? So I, I was kind of in a learning environment. So that was, you know, I'm not sure if it's feasible, especially starting from zero. Like I said before, I, I had done in, in high school some study. So I already could like read the kana and like, I knew a little bit, you know, of the grammar. So I don't know if taking the N3 in three months is feasible in general. It was hard but I did pass it. I'm also a person with a big test aptitude. Like I just passed tests. I don't know. Something about the way my brain processes multiple choice, I guess. But so I guess my, I passed from the N3 to the N1 in the space of like two and a half years or something. And, you know, they do get increasingly, I think the N3 is probably about the level where you're learning grammar points that are like conversational-ish. The N2, I would say is probably the like, it's kind of the standard, right? People say like the N2 is kind of the one where you can sort of say you speak businessy Japanese. And that's more or less true. The N1 definitely has quite a few grammar points that I've never touched again um, or heard live ever. But I think the thing about them in general is that they are just recognition tests. There's no production component. There's no writing. There is no speaking you do not have to actually be able to engage with a Japanese person on any real level to pass the test. So I would say it won't make you functional in Japanese by itself. 
you know, you have to do the hard work of like going out and finding opportunities to speak. But if you do want to pass the test, like if you just want the qualification certification, if you need it for something, my strong advice is to focus on things that help you with recognition and ignore anything that's focused on production. Like spending a lot of time learning to write all of the kanji is to me a waste of time. Like you just need to visually recognize them and move on. And also like learning each kanji one by one, like each, the meaning and every reading that they have is, you can do that, but I do not recommend it unless you're an academic. Like if you're just studying Japanese in school, okay. But if you want to pass the test quickly, learn the kanji as vocabulary, just study vocabulary. Don't study kanji. And you'll kind of pick up like, oh, this kanji, I think I've seen in this word and it made this sound. Like, does it make that sound here? And like half the time it does. And boom, you learned, you know? So that's kind of uh, my take on it. I personally have not gotten a job because of my JLPT exams. I think it counts towards my visa renewal somehow. So that's good. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it was a good motivator to study though. So that that's... I'm motivated by the test. Putting it on the calendar and saying I have to pass the N2 in five months was good for me. So I think that's one way you can use it. Yeah. So you kind of have to know yourself if it'll discourage you or if it'll kind of light a fire <laughs> under your butt to get you started. Yeah. If you have like test trauma from high school or something where like you had a really bad time taking tests, you might you might want to skip it unless you need to do it. Or take it, but remember that it's not actually a reflection of your Japanese ability. It's a reflection of your ability to take an exam in Japanese. Yeah, there's a ton of, there's a huge phenomenon of um, Chinese and Korean people, especially Chinese people passing the test like at really high numbers because they know the Chinese characters already and they can just kind of like intuit the meaning of the sentences in the written portions of the test. So like that just goes to show you like, you know, if you can kind of like, mm, well, this is a negative meaning and this is food, so probably it's the no food answer, you know, like done, you know, you right. pass the test. So, yeah. <laughs> and then also, Not like, if there's two answers that are very similar to each other, it's like, okay, it's probably one of those because you're just trying to trip me up on a detail here. So, yeah, it's test taking ability is a big component of it rather than exactly. purely your language ability. But also, it is important for some jobs, a lot of positions. Mm -hmm require um, do you see a lot that require n1 straight out or is it mostly n2 that's a good question i think that the companies who are hiring foreigners intentionally and i just dropped the f bomb there um <laughs> foreigner i think if you if you look at companies that are doing that intentionally probably they're going to set the bar at n2 and then what you'll probably see instead is companies that say like we want fluent Japanese. They'll probably want to say N1. They'll probably say fluent Japanese. And then you can kind of like pitch yourself in there with like, well, I've got the N1 fluent, right? And you can kind of maybe sail through that way. So that, that yeah, I think that that's kind of, it's rare that they ask for like really good, but not fluent. You know, they'll ask for like pretty good. Uh, mm. And if you have the N1, you'll probably definitely pass that. So. so do you have any personal examples of communication breakdowns in Japan due to cultural differences specifically? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what kind of the most relevant thing to bring up is definitely happens a lot. Yeah, I've definitely, when I first lived here, I definitely got scolded for some weird stuff a few times. Like, I didn't know, trying to think, like I didn't know that there's really specific rules about like skateboarding, for example, 
when I first moved to Tokyo, I made friends with some skateboarders and I was like, okay, cool. I'll like give this a go. I haven't done this since I was a kid, but like, I'll try again. And I bought a skateboard and I was skating around in my neighborhood and the police stopped me. And I was like, whoa, like, what did I do? It turns out that, yeah, there's some rule and it maybe it's like area by area or maybe it's, you know, how reckless you seem or I don't know, but you can't be on a wheeled thing that doesn't have brakes on a public street or something like that. So that was a lesson learned. Maybe that's not exactly what you're looking for. I think, you know, the one thing that I do deal with a lot is not from the, well, I guess I do deal with it a lot. And it's kind of from the foreign side is in hiring processes or in like a business context, foreign like interviewers versus Japanese candidates for jobs, they have really different expectations about like how that's going to go. Kind of the, re the reverse of what you mentioned earlier, uh, what we discussed earlier about interviewing at a Japanese company as a foreign person. Um, I see a lot, especially because I deal a lot with like people in sales positions, right? So sales salespeople in, 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 the, in the US, we kind of have this image of like, uh, you know, a six foot tall guy with his hair swept back and he's really like direct, you know, and he's like, hey, I'm here and I'm a great sales guy. And I'm going to sell your stuff for you. And like a Japanese person is not going to come in and do that. They're going to kind of be quiet and they'll kind of like wait their turn a little bit more. And like, yeah, you have like boisterous salespeople here too. But in general, the foreign like VP of sales who's interviewing their like sales hire for Japan, it's like almost like, I'd say well more than half the time. The first time that that happens, they come back to us and they're like, why did you introduce me to this guy who's clearly not confident in his sales ability? You know, uh, and I think we have to kind of coach them through that. It's like, it's not that he's not confident. It's just that the, the salespeople here are not going to come bust the, kick the door in and like wave their hands in the air and tell you how good they are at sales. Um, and they kind of expect that a little bit more. They kind of expect that we have a lot of clients come here who have expanded into other markets and they like, they've gone to Europe and they've, you know, they've, they've done like new market entry hiring. And what they do is they hire somebody who's like, you know, 30 years old, who has a lot of energy, who is just super like full of confidence, who's got a few years of experience under their belt, who's like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go break open this new market for you. It's a little bit more Japanese people are a little bit more like, hmm. So I just want to confirm again. So I just want to make sure. And how are we going to, what's the plan? I just want to make sure I know the whole plan before, you know, and yeah, I think the, the American hiring managers usually take that as like, this guy just doesn't seem like he knows what he needs to do in advance. He seems like he's going to want me to like go back and forth with them a lot. There's yeah, I won't get into the whole thing, but I think it part partially comes back to this concept of like hold and so this management concept of like really confirming things with your boss on like a regular basis, you know? Um, and yeah, we think that that, that causes a lot of uh, miscommunication. Right. It's just so different. It just looks so different. Oftentimes mm. the goals are the same. It's just different ways of going exactly. about it. But if you have no idea why people are doing it this certain way, it's very confusing. So. Exactly. And it takes a long time to learn. You know, I think that go back to something that's been a big theme for me recently is like, you have to fail sometimes. you got to fail to learn a lot of times. And even if you think that you you think that, oh, if you just give data to somebody, they'll kind of look at the data and they'll accept the reality of the situation. Like 
a lot of times it's just, you got to try, you got to become frustrated and you got to fail. And I know like learning languages like that, it's like, you just got to continue to beat your head against the Japanese textbook. And you'll feel like, man, this is impossible. I'll never get this. And then you'll like, you'll be better at it. And you'll realize like, wow, actually I did get better at it. But then like, you still have to keep beating your head against it. Cause like, actually you're never really done. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what it takes. But if you don't go through that, if you don't go through the pain of it, it's very, it's a very rare person who can just look at the facts of the situation and just absorb them, you know? So I, I definitely recommend if you want to learn to communicate really well with Japanese people, just try communicating with them and just be self-reflective and look at, you know, what you did that didn't work and just try it a lot. You know, obviously not like just spamming a bunch of people is not probably the approach. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no replacement for real experience. So, And the more self-aware you can be, the easier it is to identify those things in other people as well. Because <laughs> if you mm-hmm. don't, if you have no idea what your own cultural expectations are, mm. you can't exactly be aware of, oh, this is my culture getting in the way here. You just assume that everything's the other people's fault. So do what you can. Oh, and everybody yourself. goes through that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every expat who moves here goes through that. Like you, there's the period where you're like, everyone here in this country where I moved to is irrational and behaving like crazy people. And I can't understand why everyone always wants this certain thing from me or like whatever it is. Like it's really small stuff that starts to get on your nerves at a certain point And you just eventually realize like, oh, this is a me problem. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people leave, you know, a lot of people leave during that, that point. Um, but if you push through it, you end up where I am, where now I haven't been back to the U.S. in a couple of years. I was supposed to go back last year. That was impossible. So now I'm sure that I'm just completely reprogrammed. And I, if, I, if I interact with people in America online, I'm just shocked by how like argumentative things get. I'm like, whoa, I haven't had an argument with somebody. Like, <laughs> I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, I used to just do this. Right. Just for fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, reverse culture shock is real. So if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business and really could only learn one thing before they got to the country, what would you take the time Mm. to teach them? You know, if they're coming here for business, there's a ton of different, like, there's there's a ton of organizations and books out there that are trying to teach about, like, how to kind of manage the situation. And so I'm sure I'm going to miss some critical thing. But um, my, probably the go-to thing that I would, I would, I would say is learning the sort of, like, traditional greeting procedure and the, like, saying goodbye procedure. Like, because you can get through... It's kind of like what I was talking about before, like the right people to to network with here a lot of times are the people who like speak English because they're interested in in foreign countries, um, foreign people. It's the same thing in business. Like if you're just coming here for business, you're probably going to be interacting with people who are are interested in you, who are interested in, in international business. And so it's I wouldn't say like you need to really learn some Japanese things, but I think like, you know, in terms of language, but I think in terms of what you can do, learning how to do a, a Meishi Kokan, the business card swap, learning how to say, you know, Yoroshiku Onagaishimasu at the right time, come into the room. And if you can do the kind of 
yeah, it's been a while since I had a face-to-face meeting. So now I'm like, I'm like, how does this work? You know, there's like a bow that happens and then there's kind of do this thing where you hold your business card with both hands and then you pass it with one hand while you receive their business card with your other hand. And you say your name. You say like, which means like, my name is Sam. And then they say their name. And then you look at their business card really intently. And then you say like, and you bow. And then you take your seat. And then it's just like, okay, like that's meeting start. Like that's the start ritual that you just do that. And, you know, it's not quite the same, but when you leave, it's very common that they will walk you all the way to the elevator or they'll walk you all the way to the door. Even like the department stores here, like if you buy something, they will hold, they'll carry the bag to the door of the department store for you and they'll hand it to you and they'll step out of the door and they'll say like, oh, thank you. So getting that part right and understanding like, okay, and then there's going to be a little chit chat on the way to the elevator. And then as the elevator's doors are closing, you like, you say like, and you bow. And that, I think if you can get those points down, just the, the, those 10 second interactions at the beginning and the end of a, a business engagement, it will just show that you understand the importance of like the Japanese ritual, the, the way that things are done here. And I think that's just, it makes people so much more comfortable here when things have those kind of like clear beginning and this is how it works ritual. So that, that would be my advice for you to focus on that. Basically go, go back and listen to my super early episodes. If you can um, tolerate listening to my first few episodes, <laughs> go back and listen to some of those before you head to Japan. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to chat about before we head off for today? Anything we missed? I mean, I think we covered a lot of, a lot of good ground here. I think um, just to kind of summarize my um, perspective and a lot of what I, I wanted to say here, it's like, think about when you're approaching Japan, whether it's from a personal or from a business perspective, my strong advice is to think about what the Japanese person or the Japanese market really wants. Try to validate that a little bit, ideally by actually asking some Japanese people. And when you come with a value proposition, have it be you know tailored to that. Like if, you, if you're looking for a job, try to talk to some Japanese people or try to talk to some, maybe some foreigners who do the kind of job that you want, but especially talk to the Japanese people that would hire them and try to ask, you know, what do you want in the candidate? And then when you come with your value proposition, be that, say that, do that thing. And if you're missing something, then now you know what to go develop in yourself to, to be that. Right. And I just think that, um, yeah, understanding that Japan is, fundamentally this self-contained ecosystem you know that uh they want to globalize but basically japan is for for japanese businesses japanese people and if you can find what your value is for japanese people then you can position yourself to potentially have a very good situation in in japan Yeah, awesome. I think that's a great place to end it on. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Lydia. 
that you enjoyed today's conversation, and please be sure to check out the links in the description of the episode to learn more about Sam Thornton and what he's up to in Tokyo. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in this podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do so in the description of the episode as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time. また今度。